Thank you, Rachel. Good morning, everybody. I wonder if most of you could name who your favorite Christian author is. And you can't say the Bible, something else. <laughs> favorite Christian author. If you know me, you probably know the answer. It's Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City at Redeemer Church. He's a theologian and an apologist. And maybe my favorite book that he wrote is a really little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And he argues in that book that up until the 20th century, the traditional cultures have viewed the root cause of evil and the reason that people misbehave and lash out because they had too high a view of themselves, pride, high self-esteem. And he says if you look at our culture after the 20th century in the West, we've reversed that. And we've said the problem isn't that we lash out and misbehave because we have too high a view of ourselves, but it's the opposite, because we have too, view, too low a view of ourselves, because our, our self-esteem is so low. But what he argues is he says, the problem is not that our, our view of ourselves is too high or too low, because that's a lot about ourselves, either way. If you have too high a view of yourself, you're always drawing attention to yourself. Too low a view of, of yourself, you're drawing attention to the fact that you're, you're nobody or whatever, and it, that's still drawing attention to yourself. He says what's needed is to think about yourself less. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. And what that looks like is you don't always have to be building up a resume. You don't always have to be trying to impress everybody and, and, and make sure they have a good opinion of you. You don't have to find yourself in the courtroom always waiting for that verdict that you're valuable, that you mean something, when you can actually have freedom, when you can have humility, where you think about yourself less. And you might ask, well, how, is, how do you do that? How is that possible? And the answer is in the gospel. Because Jesus the one person whose verdict and opinion truly matters at the end of it all has said that in him, he finds you more valuable than all the jewels in the earth. <laughs> and so you can be free. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. That's what humility is. We're going through Ruth. And a little bit of background for you. Um, we're calling it a case study of love because Ruth is an expert at selfless love. And so we've been talking a lot about love and, and the desire to be drawn to the same God of love that she knew. We started in chapter one about talking about the loss of love, the context of Naomi, the main character, losing her husband, losing both of her sons, leaving her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, as widows. And then we talked about the opportunity to love, where Naomi wants to give them a second chance to go back to their families as she heads back to Bethlehem. But then Ruth, her... Orpah, the one daughter-in-law, goes back to Moab, but Ruth clings to Naomi and in a, an even stronger act of love commits herself to Naomi for the rest of her life. And then we talked two weeks ago about the fact that love endures as they walk Ruth and Naomi back into Bethlehem after not being there for 10 years. Ruth, Naomi remembers that she left full, but she's come back empty. And rather than Naomi Rather than Ruth being upset or saying, you came back with me, you're not empty, she gives her room to lament. That was also the sermon that we collectively decided that Facebook is better than Instagram or TikTok because they couldn't keep in touch. And then last week, Dennis brought the message of the fact that love is courageous. We have early in the morning, Ruth gets up 
being at the very bottom of the social hierarchy in a dangerous, vulnerable situation, and she ventures out into the unknown to try to provide food for herself and for Naomi. Love takes courage. And today we're going to see in the message that love is humble. We're going to see this dance of humility between Ruth and Boaz and the God of humility that they point to. The main idea of the message is this. Love and humility are inseparable. And if you think about humility as, as being thinking about the freedom of self-forgetfulness, of not being so caught up in yourself all the time, that makes sense of how we can love others. If loving others is valuing them and being willing to work for their best interests, we can only do that when we're not obsessed and caught up and always trying to build our own resume. We can look to others. Love and humility are inseparable. So we're going to talk first about the humility of Boaz. We see that in verses 8 through 9 of chapter 2. And then the humility of Ruth in verses 10 through 13. And I missed one verse there. There's one more verse in this passage, verse 14. And there's one more significant act of humility that we see in Boaz at the end of the passage. So first, the humility of Boaz in verses 8 through 9. We see him do two things. He welcomes Ruth into his community, into his field with his workers. He welcomes her. And then he warns his male workers. So he welcomes Ruth, verses 8, and the first part of verse 9. I'll remind you, it says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Remember last week the very fact that Boaz notices Ruth, the very fact that Boaz shows up in the heat of the day when he didn't necessarily have to be there, and he notices a female foreigner at the very bottom of the social hierarchy. But he doesn't just notice her, he initiates a conversation with her, even with all these barriers between them. Boaz is a connected, wealthy male landowner, Israelite clan leader. He's older, probably in his 50s, while Ruth is a disconnected, poor female, Moabite foreigner, and and younger, probably in her 20s. There's all kinds of barriers between the two of them. And yet he breaks through all of those barriers in one word when he says, daughter. Now listen, my daughter. In that one word, he elevates her, respects her, includes her. And we see the humility of Boaz coming through as he's not thinking about himself (laughs) but he's thinking about her. He breaks through it all with one word. And I want you to notice the very specific welcome that he gives her. He didn't say, welcome to my field, hope you have a great time. (laughs) And that's a very general welcome. He gives a very specific one with a series of commands here for her. It's a specific welcome, essentially telling her, you don't need to go anywhere else for food. I'm gonna look out for you, welcome to my community specific for her. I think we notice the difference between a general welcome to a new community and a specific one. I could, I could stand up here and say something like, you know, if you're new here, you're very welcome and we're glad you're here. And that's, that's good. I should say things like that. And I mean it. I am glad you're here. But that's a very general welcome. The difference between that or maybe an email invitation to some community versus an in-person, face-to-face, specific welcome. 
we know the difference. We know the difference of the impact. When I first moved here, I was thinking, and I, I was thinking about, this is five years ago. Um, I appreciated the general welcoming atmosphere on, on stage and the general welcoming atmosphere of the church, but it was the specific people that made me feel like this, is, this can be my church family, you know, making me feel welcomed. And there were multiple people that made me feel welcomed and specifically invited me and just told me they were glad I was here and I was thinking of different people that did that and I'm gonna, I don't think they'll be embarrassed, but the Frugios especially uh, early on, Nick and Krista, just made me feel very welcomed to the church. And it's, it's not necessarily difficult to do that. It's just going up to somebody and saying, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're part of this community. Um, we're glad. Ann and I just went to a church in Denver this past Sunday while we weren't here. Uh, and she has some family there, and there's a church there that made a big impact on her uh, a couple years ago. And we did miss you guys, by the way. Um, the church was extremely welcoming. And I remember there, there was a guy there named Santo, which I'll probably never meet again or, or know nothing about. But he simply came up to the two of us. There were multiple people that did something like this. But Santo came up and he just said, hey, I just want you to know I've been coming here a few months. I'm just really glad you guys are here. And then he walked away. <laughs> and I was like, cool. He didn't have to have a list of things he wanted to talk about. He didn't have to ask us 10 questions, which, which would have been fine. It was just simply, glad you're here, welcome. And introduced himself. The specific welcome. Let's be that kind of church. I know we've made some growth in the last couple years or, or more in, beco in becoming more and more of a welcoming, inclusive uh, body. And I hope that we continue to grow in that. And it doesn't have to be as hard as we might think it is. So, he welcomes Ruth, specifically. And then he warns his male workers at the last part of verse 9. Look what he says. He's talking to Ruth and he says, Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Okay. Imagine, imagine you're a female. And if you're a female, you don't need to imagine that. You already are. <laughs> and it's the first day of work. And you walk in, and your boss pulls you aside and says what, Ruth, what Boaz just said to Ruth. Don't worry. I told the guys not to touch you. What might your response be to that? Like today, first day of work, you go in. It would probably be something like, why do you feel the need to go and tell them that? This is telling us something about the culture at the time. This was a dangerous situation for Ruth. Dennis mentioned that last week. Unbelievably dangerous. At the very bottom, female foreigner, at the very bottom of the social hierarchy, she has no male protector. And Boaz doesn't wait for something to happen. He anticipates potential problems, and he addresses it. He takes initiative. And some, in our culture, something like that happened. We might call that presumptuous or judgmental. Others might call it wisdom or experience. And a lot has changed between that culture and ours and the time that has lapsed. But unfortunately, the need to protect women from abusive men has not changed. I'm going to give a, a general, very general example here of just having it in our minds, men, to be tenderly assertive to protect women. 
So when I was in Lynchburg, Virginia for grad school, we, there was a group of friends in our church that would go salsa dancing, you know, with the hips. And, <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> the hips was not part of the plan. Um, and at the end of, I think it was the first time we went, and it was downtown Lynchburg, and at the end of it, there were, there were a bunch of us, and one of, the, one of the females, one of our friends, came up to a couple of the guys, including me, and said, do you guys mind walking me back to my car? I don't feel really safe. And it didn't cross any of our minds to ask beforehand. And I, I think about that now, and I think, could she be maybe offended if any of us asked, like, do you, do you guys, do you feel safe walking back to your car, or would you like one of us, or a few of us, to come with you? It would, it would have been caring to, to not wait for someone to ask that, uh, but to offer it. So Boaz had to warn these young men not to touch Ruth. Generally, in the ancient world, they didn't trust young men when it came to sexual behavior. Good thing that's changed today, right? <laughs> oh, it hasn't. Ruth's culture valued female purity. They should have valued female and male purity. The biggest example of that that comes to mind is John chapter 8. There's a woman that was caught in adultery, brought before Jesus. You know that story? Where's the guy? They didn't even think to bring him, did they? They should have valued both the purity of men and of women, but they certainly valued and took precautions and measures to protect women. Some commentators mention how Boaz is protecting the purity of Ruth, but that's not essentially what's happening here. Ruth had already been married for over 10 years. What he was doing was protecting Ruth, the person, from potential harm. Our culture agrees I don't think you'll find somebody that disagrees that abuse is wrong, that sexual abuse is wrong. But in our culture, we don't value the purity of men or of women. And you might ask, our society would ask the church the question, why would you value that? Why would we? And I think there's, there's a lot of reasons. The very, the very first one would be, this is how the Lord designed for sex to be within the context of marriage. And if the creator designed it that way, it's foolish to go against his design. But let me ask you a specific question. Is sex supposed to be a path to love or the seal of love? Our culture says it's, it's part of the pathway to love. You find out on the way to love if it's the right person for you. But if it's the seal of love, as the Bible teaches, think for a minute of how that makes more sense. It's refusing to give yourself fully to someone physically before you've given them fully yourself economically, spiritually, emotionally. If two becoming one flesh, that vulnerable physical union, is supposed to be more than simply a physical union as scripture describes it, it's becoming one in all areas of life, physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, legally. <laughs> they protected that. Now, in saying some of this, I'm aware that some may be immediately upset and thinking about 
mistakes that have been made. And what should I say about that? Well, I already brought up John 8, so let me just quote the words of what Jesus said when mistakes were made. He said, go and sin no more. Whatever area of life mistakes that have been made in our lives, when he says go and sin no more, he's saying you can still make a positive impact in the lives of those around you for the rest of your life. Jesus has forgiven all of our errors, all of our mistakes in every category of life. And he doesn't want us to be imprisoned by the past. He forgives us. And he moves us forward to make an impact in the lives of others. Don't let it imprison you of mistakes of the past. So Boaz protected Ruth. He protects her from potential harm. He takes initiative. And he does that not caring if the male workers are going to be upset with him or look down on him or probably make fun of him behind his back. Why? Because Boaz is showing humility here. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about Ruth and what she needs. And he protects her. Love and humility are inseparable. Talked a little bit about the humility of Boaz. There's one more example at the end of this passage in verse 14, but let's look at the humility of Ruth in verses 10 through 13. In these verses, we see first relief from Ruth, respect from Boaz, and then the release of a blessing in those verses. We see first the relief of Ruth. After Boaz gives her these commands, the specific welcome and the fact that he would protect her, it says in verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Look at verse 13, still in response to what Boaz did. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. We, what do we see in Ruth in her response to Boaz? When she's thanking him for the ways that he has comforted her, when she falls on her face in gratitude, it's revealing to us her humility first, and secondly, her humanity. Let me explain that. First, her humility. After Boaz welcomes her in this very specific way and says he's going to take care of her, Ruth does not respond in an entitled manner. Of course you should. Do you have any idea what I've been through? Do you know the last couple years of my life and what's taken place? Do you know what I've given up? Do you know what I've sacrificed? Give me that grain. <laughs> no. She doesn't have an attitude of entitlement, but instead of humility. It also reveals to us her humanity. If you're tempted to think throughout the story of Ruth that Ruth seems to be almost more than human. <laughs> like, how does, she, how does she love this way? How does she sacrifice this way? There's very little examples of her showing struggle or doubt or confusion or frustration. But we see here in her response that she was a bit overwhelmed. She did struggle. Maybe from the first time since her husband died, there's signs of hope for her that she'll be taken care of. She's relieved. She was human. <laughs> if you know somebody in your life, I was thinking about this, that seems to have it all together, that seems almost super Christian, 
Like if there were levels, they're like, they seem like a level 10. <laughs> they just have it all together. I want, I want you to know that person, if you are thinking of somebody, that person has their struggles. That person has their highs and their lows. And maybe if, if a name is coming to mind, acknowledge that person, reach out to that person, show them that you, you notice their strength, but then maybe ask, how can I pray for you? <laughs> because they're human. We see the relief of Ruth, her humility that pours forth from it, her humanness. And then we see respect from Boaz in verse 11. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the day of your husband has been fully told to me, the death of your husband, has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Boaz has heard all about Ruth. How is that possible? He hadn't met her yet. It's because Ruth had become the talk of the town. People were impressed. People were blown away. People were struck by what Ruth has been doing with her life. The committed love she's given and shown to her mother-in-law, Naomi. It's like healthy gossiping. Talking about, like bragging about somebody else. If we need to be known, if we're ever known as a gossiping church, I hope it's because of a healthy gossiping church. Just talking about other people in a positive way. That's not really what gossip is. Gossip's just negative. But you know what I mean. She was the talk of the town. And when he says to her, I've heard how you left mother and father and native land, that would draw our attention to somebody previously in the story of redemption named Abraham, who left his family, who left his native land to follow the Lord with the promises that were given to him. After hearing the voice of God and promised land, seed, and blessing, he goes into the...